happy to be with you here tonight. Just uh, excited to kind of get a chance to, uh, to share. It's been a while. And uh, I, I don't know if you remember this, maybe three, four weeks ago, Mark referred to Andrew and, and, and Zach as two young lions up here preaching. And I thought, well, what does that make me? And don't say an old lion, you're better than that. But I thought about it a lot, and I thought, you know, this is it. I am an elusive Himalayan snow leopard. Rarely seen, but spectacular when you catch a glimpse. And so, my wife always says, why do you say stuff like that? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. But uh, uh, I've kind of challenged the last few weeks, because I'm, I'm joining in on a, on a series of messages that I kind of didn't plan, right? Like, it's, it's something we've been doing as a church. And so, uh, if you go back to uh, week one, it was Mark speaking about a man on a mission. And he talked about how Christ came and he died for you, but not just for you. That he came for, to, to, for a world that needed saving, and so the world that needs a gospel. So we spoke about that. And then Zach talked about servants on a mission, and he talked about the parable of the three servants and how when they were given talents, and that meant money, but we can use the word as talent now, when they were given talents by their master, he saw some people took that and just went out and just made something of it, and others just kind of hid it away. And then uh, Mark talked about being comfortably uncomfortable, comfortably uncomfortable. And he said, listen, we're not meant uh, for here. We're meant to be on mission here. And then last week, Zach shared something. I have no idea. The message isn't online yet, so uh, it was good. I know that. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's part of that series. And I, I want to talk about your role in all that. And so we're, talk, we're calling tonight just Your Part Matters. And it's just an understanding of that. God called us to do some very unique things, but he called us to do it together. Not individually together because we're all in the same place, but actually things that can only be accomplished when we come together. And so uh, I'll start with this. I don't know if you saw the headline this summer. You saw this headline here. It talked about uh, a lottery winner who, uh, for a ticket that went unclaimed. And just to think about that for a minute, it's a crazy thought that maybe you're a multimillionaire and you just don't know. You just, nobody told you and you just have no idea. And, uh, and uh, I, I couldn't help but think, like, did this person maybe dodge a bullet? Did this person actually get lucky that they never knew that they won that money? And, and I base that on some statistics. I did a whole bunch of research on this, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll do this as a little, uh, little callback game here. But uh, let me ask you a few statistics and see if you, if you think the real statistic is higher or lower than what I'm saying. So how many, what percentage of lottery winners, and, and in this study, I'm going to refer to a study. In this study, they talked about winners of a million or more. Not, not $20, not, not a small amount, but a million or more. What percent of those people had spent all of their money in seven years? Do you think it's 50%? Do you think it's higher or lower? Higher. higher. It's interesting you would say that. It seems crazy. It's higher. It's about 70% of those winners had nothing left. How about this one? How many of them do you think went bankrupt in the first five years of winning that money? Let's go 25%. Higher or lower? Actually ended up worse off than they were before they won. Higher or lower? Higher? It is higher. 33%. That's insane to me. A third of people were managing to get by, and then they won a whole bunch of money, and then within five years, they weren't able to make ends meet anymore. How about this one? What percentage do you think either was still working or went back to work within three years of winning? Let's go 50%. Higher or lower? 52%. Over half of them either never quit their job or they went out and found another job at some point within that first three years. Here's a a tough one. 
How many do you think got divorced within five years of receiving this windfall? Let's do 20%. Higher or lower? Lower. I had to trick you guys. You're guessing higher every time and and getting it right. Lower, 18%. But that's 18% in a five-year window. It actually, if you think about the length of the average marriage, it actually is a much higher statistic than you would think. It's higher than the 50% we see across our nation. It's amazing to think that. In a survey, how many reported that they are happy? Not happier, just happy. 50%, higher or lower? It was 54%. 54% said, you know what? I'm happy, which means 46% who went from that exciting moment of can't believing how lucky they were to receive that money, 46% of them lost that joy somewhere along the way. And this was all part of a study done by two separate uh, professors in in different universities in California, and they both came uh, to almost identical statements at the end of their research. And here's, here's what the first one said. It said, as we grow wealthier, we value independence more and social connectedness, connectedness less. And that's what she was able to attribute all of, all of these kind of terrible things going on in the lives of many of these winners to the fact that they had lost connection in search of independence. And the other, the other researcher said almost the same thing, except she used the word autonomy. People, when they became wealthier, sought autonomy. And that just means the ability to just make all your own decisions and not be held accountable by anybody else they, they were most uh, seeking after that. And what that left them with, 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 when they lost their money, was suddenly, I have a boss again, and I have bills to pay that I don't know how I'm going to pay them. And I, have to, I don't wake up in the morning decide what to do. I wake up in the morning with things I have to do. And it kind of makes sense you know, in, in a very uh, physical element, doesn't it? That, uh, that somebody who suddenly becomes very wealthy, that they would kind of remove themselves from other people uh, physically in their lives, things like, you know, gated communities and private jets or, or even just this is what they call the new first class. This, this is where you can, you're, you're on a plane with a whole bunch of other people, but you'd never know it. It's like you're, own, you're in your own little booth there. Remember back in the day, you have to, you'd find out what movie was playing on the plane? Not here. You, you, you get to go on any of the streaming devices and watch anything you want. You remember how you had to pick your meal ahead of time or you'd have two choices, chicken or fish, right? Not anymore. They serve, they serve full meals with menus. It's, it's, it's autonomy that people always seem to strike out after when they find themselves doing very well. But socially, uh, it's not surprising either that they might lose coworkers, the people they spend time with every day at work. Suddenly, they don't have to go to work. They used to go to the gym and see people they knew at the gym, but now they have a personal gym at home. Uh, they, they find themselves avoiding friends and family because what does your friend and family want every time you talk to them? They want a little peace, right? Uh, And even church attendance goes down as you become wealthier in the case of people who kind of won their wealth, unexpected wealth. And because, again, you go to church, people know, right? You imagine what we'd be saying to you about the bathrooms if we knew you just want a lot of money, right? I tell you what, that would be the Watson washroom wing. You're welcome, (laughs) right? But a lot of people will be like, I don't want that. I don't want to get hassled by people there. So they actually shrink away from those around them. And I found that very interesting that it's all about independence or freedom or self-reliance or this word autonomy. And uh, and North American individualism has kind of leaked into the church a little bit where we, we focus so much on our personal relationship with God, which obviously is an important part of what we're doing here. But we kind of just push away another part of what Jesus talks about when he talks about community. He talks about believers coming together to do things that individuals can't do. 
And we've been culturally conditioned to seek out the idea of it being things done my way. Uh, you know, I'm the boss of myself. I'm in control of what I want to do. And I don't need to check with other people. It's like we've become the lone ranger of church attendance, where it's like I go to church, but I'm still kind of in control of what goes on there. Because if I don't like that church, if I can't change it, I'll go to another church. And it's this idea of autonomy being kind of the number one thing. And so I think we also know, though, and you probably think of some of these people, that when they, then when they retire and maybe they have a little bit more wealth than they did when they were working and they have their health, they have the freedom to do what they want, they double down on church. They kind of start coming to church twice as often. They're joining every group they can because I think they've learned something that the Bible teaches that maybe those other people in those studies haven't. And I think what they've learned is that the Christian, by very nature of definition, is connected to something greater. And I think you would all agree instantly with that. Well, yeah, God. We're connected to God. God's greater than me. We all kind of accept that. But what we're going to look at today is some scripture that suggests to us that although that is true, that God has a plan for us where we connect to something greater than, than ourselves, and it's not just God in that, in that relationship it's also with God's people, and he just calls that his church. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the church before we, we kind of jump in here. And uh, to do that, we're going to do my favorite thing to do every Saturday night when we come here. We're going to take a peek at the Greek. So I've got a $20 Tim's card for anybody brave enough to come up here and practice some of your Greek. Yeah. No, only one. No, only one person. I'm going to point. I'm going to point. I'm going to point. Owen just volunteered remotely. That's pretty cool. I'm the sort of person who probably gives the prize away anyway, but you've never watched the show? No. Anybody else? Anybody? No. (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to put a graphic up here. Not yet. We're going to put a graphic up here, and you're going to tell me what Greek word we're pointing to. You're going to speak the word in Greek based on the hints, and then if you get it right, I'll explain to the, all the audience playing at home what word we've discovered here. So what are the chances of you being embarrassed at church? They're pretty good. It's Greek. We don't know this language, right? So here we go. I'm going to give you, I don't know, a fair amount of time, four seconds, to work your way through. What's your first guess? Right off the top, what's your first guess? That is correct. I can't believe... No. (laughs) You were very close. Let me give you a hint. This old guy, his name is Johan. Does that help you at all? No. Oh, wait. I was supposed to tell you, his last name is Ek. His last name is Ek. So we're starting with Ek. What do we think? What's flower wreath? A lay. A lay. What is this? Someone suggesting C. What's that kid saying? Ah, put it together for us. Ecclesia. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Ecclesia. I didn't tell you the word first because I bet you a bunch of you know it now that you hear it. You know what ecclesia is, don't you? We've we've gone over this so many times. Ecclesia. Let's see it in the in the actual Greek here. Every time, every single time in the New Testament, you read the word church, this is what was written in Greek, without exception in the New Testament. And it's the word ekklesia is how we say it. And I I know that that some of you are still kind of like 
focused on Johann Eck. He had nothing to do with it. Do you recognize this picture, though? I think he's on our $10 bill. I think if you check, that's who's on there. But I think, I'm not sure. But ekklesia, it's a Greek word. And we use the word to represent church. The writers of the New Testament did not. You see, the word church, ekklesia, is focused on this idea of it being a gathering of people. And so ekklesia could be any people. It could be people at a concert. You would say, wow, look, there's 40,000 ekklesia. Uh, you know, people came together for an ekklesia to see this concert. It's a gathering. Or it could even be like a, like a sports fan going to a game. And you're sitting there with all these other Blue Jays fans, and you're part of the ecclesia. You're a gathering that came with a purpose. You could even be an angry mob protesting. And they're all, they're all yelling, and they're screaming, and be like, ah, look at this ecclesia just showed up, and they're all angry about something. It's not even a church word. It simply means a gathering of people with a single purpose. And, it was, and then 2,000 years ago, when those words were first written in the, in the uh, New Testament, when they first used that word church, that word ecclesia, they were talking about a group of people coming together with a single purpose, with a single mission. You see, it was never meant to be a replacement for the word temple. If they wanted to write the word temple, they had a word for that in Greek, and ecclesia was not it. It had a different name. And so Christians came together, and they weren't called Christians back then either. But when they came together, they just became the ecclesia no matter where they were. If they were out in a parking lot, if they were at the store, if they are at each other's houses, because it couldn't be when they were in the church because they didn't have any. They did not start by building churches. They started by building a gathering of people. And, that's, and what we find out is that's not what Jesus, if you think about it, that's not what he established when he, when he was walking the planet either. He did not go around building little spaces for people to go where they could worship him. He kind of did the opposite. I mean, did Jesus go to temple? Of course he did. But he didn't limit his, his I'll call it religious activity, to being in that building. You know, you think about the, the church things that Jesus did. You know, where did Jesus, Jesus go to pray? It was often in a park or a garden. Where did he go to preach? Often on a hillside or sometimes in a boat out in the water somewhere. Where did he have communion? At whoever's kitchen table he was sitting at. Might have been, might have been someone he knew, might have been a total stranger. If he was sitting at a table, they shared communion together. Where would, he, where would you see him healing people? At pools, by the side of the road, wherever he was. He did not take all of his church events and place them somewhere. Everywhere he went. You saw Jesus being the church. The beginning of the church was exactly what Ecclesia said, a gathering of people, a movement of a common uh, goal focused on living and worshiping and working in a certain way. And that's how the church grew. The church did not start to explode when they started putting stakes in the ground and started building things. The church exploded when people came together with a simple belief in who Christ was. In fact, the word has nothing to do with the word temple or any other word that has to do with a building. And then you may ask, well, how did this happen then? And really what it is, it's, it began with the, the church at the time, the organization, not the people, but the organization. Uh, they changed the word. They changed the word from ecclesia to kerk. And kerk was a Jew, German word that literally meant the physical house of God. And so when they were translating the Bible, they just started changing out ecclesia for this word instead. And you may think, well, why didn't the people say anything? Because the people didn't read. 
The people didn't have copies of the scriptures. They took, for, took word for word what they were told by the church leaders. And so over the course of about 300 years, we saw this word kirk grow and grow and grow. And church became a place. And if you wanted to see God, you had to go where God hung out. And it wasn't about what the gathering was doing. It was the location of the people. And so uh, this went on for, for several hundred years. And in the early 1500s, so we're talking over a thousand years of ingraining this idea of what church was, what church was, we come across someone named William Tyndale. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. Isn't this guy Johann Eck? No. But they all look the same. How old do you think this guy is? So old is correct. He, well, he died when he was 42. So they just made all the drawings of people back then. They, I think they made them all old so they looked wiser. But uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's William Tyndale. And William Tyndale should not be, should not be made fun of because he is probably one of the most heroic people you'll ever read about. Uh, he, was, he was a linguist first and a theologian second. And he just had this belief that people need to see the scriptures. They need to have them. They need to have copies in their homes. They need to be able to read it for themselves. And so he got in quite a battle when he would translate. He went back to Ecclesia. He would go back and explain what the church was meant to be. And of course, the establishment, the church, didn't like that very much. And Tyndale was, was creating copies of scriptures, most likely not entire Bibles, but just sections of scriptures. There's no, he, he, he would create these. He's selling them everywhere he goes, you know, giving them away. He's selling them. And so the church decided, you know what? Nobody can read them if we have all the copies. This is how smart an idea this was. So they went out and they bought all of the copies of Tyndale's work, which of course made that Tyndale had all of this money to invest in making more copies of the, of the scriptures. And so he was, he, was, he, was, he was cranking them out, literally. He had, he had people who were just creating and creating and creating these writings. And eventually the church decided to uh, try to silence him. So they sent him off in exile and he was kind of hiding. But in hiding, he was still talking and writing about what Ecclesia was and all these other things to do with the scriptures. And eventually he was kind of uh, tricked. Somebody named Henry Phillips, and he's not on our $10 bill because we don't like him very much. He tricked Tyndale into coming back where he was arrested. And as he awaited trial, they, they came to him and said, listen, if you just stop all of this nonsense, we don't want to make a martyr of you. Stop writing, just go away, and we will, uh, we will let it go. And he was given multiple opportunities to just recant and say, you know what, uh, I was wrong, it's, it's Carrick, it's not Ecclesia. And he refused. And in fact, here's what he said during his trial. Um, I should say he polite, politely refused, but it wasn't very polite, actually. It was pretty good. He, uh, he said this on his, in his trial. He said, if God spare my life here today, before many years pass, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than the Pope does. And that's what we call a medieval Bible burn. That is, that, is, that is not the sort of thing you say as you're being tried as a heretic. I mean, that's not the sort of thing you do. So I guess he would have said, boom, roasted, but unfortunately, that's how he ended up. That he, uh, I won't even describe how, how he was put to death. It was horrible. But he refused to give up this idea that the ecclesia was not a place. It was not a position of power that people somehow had power over other people. He said, the ecclesia are the people. And wherever the people show up, that is exactly what the church is. And the reason I've gone through all this kind of preamble is we're going to look at a passage today where, where Paul talks about the body of Christ, and he talks about the church. And we have to remember he's not talking about like a place like this. He's not talking about a building with a board of directors and, and, and a website and all that sort of stuff. 
He's just talking about believers that come together to, in an attempt to do something that's greater than themselves. And so the ecclesia, again, it's this movement. It's this, it's this congregation of people that have a single purpose. And that purpose is laid out by Christ. And one of the last things he said before he was taken up into heaven, following his death and resurrection. So let's kind of dig into that. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for the most part tonight. So if you want to find 1 Corinthians 12 and maybe just uh, stick your finger in there, we'll jump around a bit, but this is going to be kind of our key verse. And we're going to really focus on this idea of what Paul was saying in the light of what the, church, the word church means. And so 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says this, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Now we're going to find out as we go back, Christ's body, this, what he's saying is when he says Christ's body, he means the church. He says, he says, all of you together are the church and each of you is a part of of the church, and that makes total sense, right? If, if all of you together are something, then you individually are all a part of that something. And he says, you're, you know, and I love the, the illustration of Christ's body is this idea that the church is basically the body of Christ. When Christ is not here, we're to act as his body, his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears, his heart. That's where we're to be. And he says, all of you together. And really what we can do every time we see where it says Christ's body, we can kind of insert in our minds the word church. But again, not, not the idea of the church being this place. The church is you people. It's the people. And so not, and just to be clear, because uh, it kind of sounds crazy to say this, you know, if I, if I was to say to you, are, are you the church individually? I say that to someone. The answer is actually no, that no individual is the church. The church is the coming together of all these parts, all of these different people, and there's no number put on it. But that's what being the church is. You are not individually the church, but you, the group of you, is the church. And he's explaining this relationship between the bigger you and the individual you, the group of you and the lone Christian, the lone ranger Christian who has, has a separate part to play. And I, and I don't want to confuse this either, that salvation is not a group effort, that you know, salvation is accepting God's, God's invitation to, to, be, to be brought into a right relationship with him, that does not require the group. He says, but the mission of the church does. And so what is the mission of the church? We're going to get to that in a minute, but I want to start with a, just this idea that this is not a new concept. You can read this in Matthew 18, verse 20. You don't have to go there. We're just going to be there for a second. But it says this, for where two or three gather together as my followers, what's it say next? There I am also, there, there I am amongst you. Like, depends on the, the version you're looking at, right? Let's look at the second half here. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I, and, and Matthew's writing this, but he's quoting Jesus, I, Jesus, am there among you. There's something powerful about when believers come together. And that's what we're going to leverage today when we talk about the church. It's a simple concept that we are called to be together, to form something that we cannot be on our own. No one person can be the church. We are all parts of the church. And so if we put 1 Corinthians 12, 27 back up, this is kind of our keystone verse, if you will. This is kind of our conclusion. Um, we're actually going to go backwards now. Paul's going to make an argument. He's going to spend about 15 verses making an argument about explaining the role of the church and how this works. And this is kind of his concluding statement. But I wanted to start there. I wanted to start at the end so we know where we're going. That, that Paul says this, that all of you together 
are the church, and each of you are a part of that congregation. So let's go back all the way, not all the way, it's like a, a paragraph. 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to start in verse 12. So 12, 12. And so again, this is just about 12, 15 verses before what we just read, before what's on the screen. So let's just back up a little bit. And you're going to notice for all the scripture today, I've highlighted the word body every single time in yellow and the word parts every single time in green. Because I, I, I really think when you start to see the scripture in chunks, you're going to be overwhelmed by how many times the word body and the word part is used because it's something that, that, uh, that Paul is just going over and over again. So I want you to notice that as we read this. So it says this in verse 12. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share that same spirit. So let's just review a few terms here. And first of all, I, I, I picked up a biology textbook very quickly this week, and it's accurate. Uh, the human body is made of many parts. And I think that's part of what Paul's doing here. He's stating the blatantly obvious. And I think it's because he's telling us that the rest of this should be blatantly obvious too. But he starts with something very concrete. But if we go through and we look, remembering that when he talks about the body, starting in the second half of verse 12 and on, He's talking about the church. When we say this in our heads, and I'm not rewriting scripture, but when you say this in your heads, you can put the word church in there if it helps you keep in mind. So the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the church. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slave, and some are free, but we've all been baptized into one church by one spirit. What is that spirit? It's Holy Spirit. How do we know? Why isn't it school spirit, church spirit? Why is it Holy Spirit? It's because it's capitalized. If you look there, it's a, it's a name. It's the name of Holy Spirit. So keep that in mind. We're not talking about just that we all share the same spirit of you know, be, being friends or being comrades together. It's not, it's not saying that. It's saying Holy Spirit. It's, so we have all been baptized into one church by one Holy Spirit, and we all share that same Holy Spirit. So let's take, let's take, let's kind of take a half step back then and just, and just kind of start with this. Uh, the first point I would make about what we've seen here then is, is the simple idea that we have all been invited, that we are all invited. And we could do a whole series about that, but we're not going to. We have all been invited because if you think about who did Jesus invite to follow him, it was Samaritans, it was lepers, it was tax collectors, it was adulterers, Pharisees, it was even children, if you can imagine. He invited them all to follow and when, they, and when Paul writes here, Jew and Gentile, that's everyone. Jew or, Jews were people who were part of the Jewish faith that, uh, that you know, would go to temple and were part of the Old Testament faith, and Gentiles were everybody else. Those who were free, those who were slave, you were either a slave or you were free. There's no third category that he's talking about everybody. It's, it, it's, it's even beyond, you know, oh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. No, there's the online church, the, the people you've never met, the people who have come here once, but they still think about something they heard. It's not like that. It is a total statement that Jew and Gentile, that's everybody. Free and slave, that's everybody. And so you can, re, you can kind of go through there and we could, we could change those, you know, to... Uh, uh, you know, different things that we think of more clearly. I don't know. I don't, I don't really think of myself as either Jew or Gentile. I don't kind of think of myself that way. 
but you know you, you could you could put in your your um, what you do for a living or your family status or whatever to kind of understand that it's everyone he's including. So if you kind of look at that statement again, let's just go back to that verse one more time. The human body has many parts, and the many parts make up the whole body. So it is with the church. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles. We could say some of us are are homeschool instructors and some of us are farmers. Some of us are slaves and some of us are free. Some of us work in grocery stores and some of us turn the sign from slow to stop on the construction crew. It doesn't matter. It's everybody's included. And as you go through that, it says we've all been baptized into one church. There's only one church by the Holy Spirit and we all share that same Holy Spirit. Next section continues in verse 14. And again, this, this one you'll see a, a whole bunch of green and yellow as we go through here. It says this starting in verse 14. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that make it any less of a part of the body? Paul didn't write this, but we would say, of course not. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would we hear? If the whole body were an ear, how would we smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. And I don't know this, but I think this would have got laughs in Corinth. I really do. When they read this letter to the church in Corinth, I think they would have kind of laughed at this. It's kind of almost like a ridiculous idea, isn't it? There's a complex system but we, they, would, they would kind of think to themselves, well, of course. Yeah, you're, you're not a body. You're not a person if you're a pile of eyes. You know, that's, that's not a thing. But he's, he's giving us this analogy of this, of this idea of being part of a whole. The body is the whole. But there's all these different parts, all these different pieces to it. And I think that I do. I think he kind of meant it tongue-in-cheek. And I think that kind of leads us to our second part here. Our second point would simply be this, that we are all involved that there is a role for everyone. And not just invited, but we have something we should be doing. It doesn't matter if we understand our role or if we like our role. It doesn't really matter if we wish we had a different role. We just know that we have a significant part to play. And I think of it this way. I wonder if Paul might have done a different analogy if, if he was uh, around in modern times. Is, anybody know what this is? Again? Piston. piston. It's not a Piston. Uh, I wrote it down. It's a uh, engine component. Uh, oh God. It's a it's a piston, right? What's it do? It does stuff, right? It's an important. Can you can you agree with me? It's an important part of your engine, right? Its job is to go up and down, so this part will turn, and then this is how you get the power in your car. Piston kind of sounds like a powerful world. Like right? what is the what is the um, piston cup? What's that from? Lightning McQueen, that's right. Last time we quoted VeggieTales, so I just thought I'd keep going here. This, this is an important part of a car. But if what you have sitting in your driveway is, is a couple hundred of these, you're not going to work. It's, it's not enough. It's a part. It's a critical part. It's a part you can't do without. Although I guess maybe, Bruce will tell me after, if you have an eight-cylinder engine, could you get by with seven? He's like, well, your gas mileage would, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> You, you need it. You absolutely need it. Well, well, what about this one? What's this? Oh, correct. You're, no more prizes. You've got what you're getting. This ignition coil. I had to Google it. You know what this does? It makes a spark. It makes a spark. Well, you, you kind of need this. 
Internal combustion engine requires combustion. Without that, this isn't moving. So if you imagine there's, there's some fuel above this in a cylinder, and when it kind of explodes, basically what happens is it forces this down. And then there's another piston that forces it back up again. Without a spark, you're not going anywhere. Bruce, is this right? It, I don't think it's right. Bruce, Bruce, is, Bruce is like, you don't know, buddy. Trust me. You need this. You need this. What's this? Look at a teapot. I don't know what this is. I just raided my, I, I work in a high school. I just went to the auto shop and just started grabbing stuff. Some kid probably failed their project because they went to show their teacher how the good work they did and I stole all their parts. It's a fuel pump. You know, what, you know what's probably confusing you? These are parts from like 1964 Chevys because that's the sort of cars we have in our garage. We have nothing in there with a, like a computer. We, we, my, the auto shop teacher tried to give me a distributor cap and I'm like, I don't think those exist anymore. But anyway, it's a fuel pump. Well, if, if what I understand is that a spark has to create a little explosion to force the piston down, there's got to be some fuel in there as well. None of these things are cars. All of them are necessary. All of them are required. And a big pile of fuel pumps in your garage, you're not going anywhere. And what Paul's saying is, with his analogy of a body, it, it's, it's, it's almost sounds silly when you, when you read it, doesn't it? Body parts, ears. What if the ear says this? Again, I think I, think I would have got laughs. But it's a, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But it's this idea that they all are necessary parts, but they're different parts. I mean, they all made my hands greasy, but they're different parts. But they all go towards one goal. And it says we're all involved, but we all have a role to play. And it speaks to the interconnectedness of the people who make up the congregation, of the people who make up the church. And it's powerful stuff if you feel like it. It says, listen, you're part of the body. Remember, we're all involved. You are a part of the body. Whether you like it or not, whether you feel like it, whether you think to yourself, you know what? I leave that stuff to the extroverted people. They, they can be part of the body. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be in the back, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a listen, and I'll get out here real quick. That's a different part. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you like the other parts around you. It doesn't matter if you feel like you would rather be something different, and it doesn't really matter if you feel like you're an important part of the body. Paul's telling us that we all have this, we're all, in, we're all not just invited, but we're all involved. We all have a role to play. And then he goes on in verse 20, and we're, this is all the same section. And again, notice how many times I've highlighted some words here. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. He's saying the same thing again. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. The NIV says the most indispensable. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe, clothe while the, with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that the extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. Is he talking what I think he's talking about? You followed this, right? He's talking about the parts of your body that needs to have clothes on at all time, right? Like he's talking, but here's, he, what he's saying is it doesn't matter what, what we perceive to be the best part or the most efficient part or the part you can't do without. He says it's all necessary. Remember the verse we, we read uh, just a few minutes ago when we went back to verse uh, 13. Um, sorry, no, um, I've lost it now. Ah, sorry, verse 18. But our bodies have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. 
And this leads us to our third point for tonight, that we are not just all invited and we're not just all involved, but we all are important. Indispensable is what the NIV, I think I said that it says. And in verse 25, it continues, and this is what takes us up to the verse we started with today. It says, this makes for harmony among the members. We could have said parts instead of members. So that all the members or all the parts care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. And then Paul wrote, as we started with in the first verse here, where you go, all of us together are Christ's body, and each of you are a part of it. See, the goal is not autonomy. The goal is connection. Together we can complete the will of God in this world, but not if we act alone. The, the, the analogy is clear, that, that it's not a simple case of, well, if enough people do enough good things individually, everything will work out okay. He says, no, the body needs all the other parts to be connected, to be working towards the same goal. And so when I, what we're really talking about here is, is not, you know, this, this, this scripture is usually used as a launch to say, well, now you need to sign up to volunteer to do something. And I would love for you to sign up to volunteer to do something, but that's not, that's not what we're going to do. But I want you to think about the sort of things we have here at Kingsway that you could be involved in to figure out what your part is. You could be in the media team. Believe it or not, we could squeeze a few more people back there. <laughs> Believe it or not, most weeks we're scrambling to find enough people to go back there. Well, the media team, what's that? What's that? Why would that be an important part to me? You know, I don't, I don't know if that's a fuel pump or an ignition. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. It's an opportunity for you to work toward the mission that God has laid out for us. I still haven't told you what that mission is. We'll get there. But it's an opportunity, and that might just be the niche for you. You might just find you have a real talent for it. I'd love to ask Chris right now with everybody staring at him. It's like, did he always know this was something he was gifted at? You ever watch the online presentation? You see these new cameras? They're freaking me out. They got lights flashing. They're moving around. Now they're both on. I don't know what that is, but... He's doing something back there that benefits the church. What about, uh, what about the worship team? You saw them up here earlier. That's, a, that's an easy one to see, isn't it? We want to come together. We want to worship God. And what is one of the best ways to do that is to just meet him in song. God tells us he loves to hear us sing. He loves to hear us sing his praises. Well, the worship team does that. But they're a part of what we're doing here. And again, you probably use the same analogy I use. Instead of car parts, you probably talk about parts of the band. And how if you don't have enough going on up there, the sound starts to thin out. What about the Sunday school team? Or the youth group? Or the junior youth? I think that's an easy one, isn't it? To see how the difference you can make in the lives of young believers. How you can help people walk through, through an understanding of who God is and what God has done for you. There's so many different opportunities. Some starting with simply going and just being there, helping supervise. You don't walk in the first day and suddenly you're, you've, got, uh, you've got to do some sort of talk on Jonah and you're trying to figure out how to explain this stuff. It's just being there and just aunt, talking to kids, helping kids, and, uh, and working through lessons like that. What about uh, if it's not something you're volunteering? What about a Bible study? Would a Bible study be a part of this? It's not volunteering. Is it still part of being the church? I would argue it is. I would argue it's a hugely important part. That what we find is Bible studies with zero people in them don't learn very much. And by showing up at a Bible study and asking questions, you're teaching. I always say that to my students. When you're asking questions, you're teaching the class as much as I am because you're asking questions that people want to know the answers to. 
join up, sign up for one of these uh, announcements that we make every week. We don't, I, a lot of people think we just do announcements because I like to talk. And of course, that's not true. That's not true. We do it so that you have an opportunity to join something, to become a part of something bigger. Maybe you want to be a greeter. Maybe you want to share your knowledge about Kingsway and just share your story with people as they come in. Is that meaningful work to greet people when they arrive, for guests to come and to get to see a smiling face? I would certainly say it is. What about, uh, sometimes I think uh, I call them kind of secondary ministries. Uh, how, how many people here know who Penny Fibs is? What is she famous for? Tarts. Butter tarts. I would argue with you that Penny Fibs has a butter tart ministry. And you'll probably have a hard time finding that in Scripture to explain it. But let me tell you something. Uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, um, I was at a, uh, a uh, fundraiser for Haiti dinner. We were at uh, Hope Above Dinner, and, we, and there was an auction. And before the evening was out, we were selling half dozen butter tarts for a couple hundred dollars each. People were just wanting to be a part of something bigger. They wanted to help with Haiti. I, I, I sold six butter tarts for more in the auction than I could sell a barbecue for. That's, that's, that's an amazing thing if you think about it, that she can bless people through her ability to make amazing butter tarts. Not just that it would brighten your day, not just that it would make you happy because you got one if you were quick enough to get back on a Sunday morning, but she's actually building the ministry through butter tarts. What about something real simple, like going to the church picnic tomorrow? Is that a ministry? Is, is that being a part of the whole? I would think it is. You go and you talk to someone you've never talked to before. You share a bit of your story. They share a bit of yours. You know them a little bit better. You understand them a little bit better, and they understand you a little bit better. You are building something. You are a part of something greater. Because you never know when you're going to have a chance to share the gospel with somebody. You might assume everybody at a church picnic you know, is, uh, is uh, locked and loaded and saved and ready to go, but you're going to meet, you'll always meet people in every walk of life that gives you an opportunity to share your story. And the more you share it, the more people you share it with, the more comfortable you become doing it. But why? What, what would be the purpose of all this? Is it just to run a more efficient building? Is it to make the, the Saturday night or the Sunday morning church uh, experience you know, run more smoothly so that people will enjoy coming? Maybe. Maybe that's part of it. But I don't think that's the mission that's been laid out for us. At no point did Jesus say, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build little buildings all across the countryside. I want you to be big enough that you can hold like two, 300 people. And then every week I want you to put like eight people in those giant buildings of two or 300 people so that they can just enjoy going to church. It's not what he designed for us. He said, I have a purpose for you. And he shared it in Matthew 28 when he was talking to his 11 disciples. Of course, we know at this point there was 11. And in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, it says this, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I want you to think about what a, what a crazy statement that must have sounded like for someone to say, I have been given all authority in all of heaven and all of earth. I can understand why some might have doubted that it was really Jesus or he really was saying what he was saying. But I would, I would argue this, that for most people there, they would say, you know what? I'm going to choose to believe what he's telling me because I just saw him be raised from the dead. I think there's maybe something a little special going on there. So he said to them, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands they have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even 
to the end of the age. This is what we often call this the, the, the Great Commission, right? He's, he's given them their marching orders. He's telling them what he wants them to do. These 11 are the church. Remember that. These 11 are the church at that moment. And he says to them, here's what I want you to do. And the first thing he says to them basically is, he says, listen, everyone's invited. We are all invited because he says this, go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, of all people. Everyone's invited. And he's basically saying this to them, listen, don't stay here. Don't just preach to the people you know. Don't just hang out outside the temple seeing if you can snag a few people. He says, I want you to go out to all the nations. And that's because they were all involved. There was, invo- there was something for all of them to be doing. He said, don't just the 11 of you just clump up together outside the temple and see if you can snag a few people. He says, you've all got a mission to do here. And I want you to all go out. You're all involved. And I think the third, the third point that we're all important is, is kind of implied here. But why would Jesus need these guys to do that? Why did Jesus need? Well, let me rephrase that. Jesus doesn't need them to do it but he wants them to be a part of something bigger. He wants them to build the church. And so as he sends them out, you know, it was only 350 years after he made that statement that Rome, the, 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 the people in the government who falsely accused and killed Jesus, that Rome took on Christianity as their, as their official religion. 300 years, they had made their way to Rome and they had done exactly what Jesus had asked them to do. They made believers wherever they went. And so as, as you know, he's, he's not asked us to establish little buildings all across the countryside. I just, driving in today, I thought how crazy it is. Balmoral's got like six houses and two churches. It's nuts. But it's not what he called us to do, to build churches. He said to make believers, to, to, have, to create followers. And that's what we've been asked to do. And, and uh, that is the mission of the church. And so, you know, we live in a society where everybody's heard the name of Jesus, but very few seem to choose to follow and what would it look like if everybody at Kingsway, if everybody here tonight, if everybody here tomorrow, everybody who shows up at the picnic on, uh, in the afternoon, what if every single person said, you know what, I'm not going to be satisfied in my life until I find a place where I am shoulder to shoulder with God's, God's people and shoulder to shoulder with other believers looking to accomplish the work that God has laid out for us. And I know for some, it's like, ah, I don't want to volunteer my time on the weekends. I work very hard. During, I mean, I don't work very hard during the week, but I understand that lots of people work very hard during the week. I don't want to do that. I don't want to give up my spare time. I got football to watch starting this weekend. I got, I got, I got. And I would just simply say, I think you've got, you've got too much I, not enough we. That when you can move away from this idea of what makes me comfortable, what makes me happy, and is said to simply say, what would Christ, what has Christ, not what would he, what has he called me to do? Sometimes we say to ourselves, you know, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't see, I don't see a vision. I don't, I don't know what God has planned for me. He's telling you. Every page of scripture he tells you, here's what I want you to do. I want you as my church, as, as my followers, as my congregation to go out and build the church. And that's what he still calls us to do. John Wesley said this, he said, intentional Christian community was never, uh, is not a non-negotiable part of being a healthy and effective believer. And here's the quote. He said, Christianity is not a religion for solitude and soli- soli- solitary. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. As you read through the life of Christ and you read through Acts and see what the church was doing, it was all about them coming together to accomplish God's will. And so I always, I, I don't know if you even know this, but I usually 
end all of my sermons but just by saying, remember what Christ has done for you. And I would add to that today, remember what Christ has done for you, but also remember what he's asked you to do for him, to be a part of something bigger, to be a part of his ecclesia, that you would come together as people and not just as individuals who came to the same place, but individuals who came to serve the same purpose. And I think that's worth remembering, and I think that's worth celebrating. So let's pray. Lord, just so thankful for a chance to speak, for a chance to just uh, be among your people. Lord, we just know that you, you, so much of what the Bible tells us is, is about a personal relationship with you, but we know that you didn't end there, Lord, that you have a calling for us, the church, not just us as individuals, but us, the church, Lord. And I just pray that we would be people who would seek that out, who would find ways to connect with believers, Lord, because that's what you've asked us to do. That the Great Commission was not something that you just said to 11 people. You said it to believers and you said it to the church everywhere. And it still means as much today as it did the day you said it 2,000 years ago. Just thankful for, for Kingsway. Thankful for the people who come here every week. Lord, I just they're, they're, they're wonderful people. And I know, Lord, that you have great things in store for them. And I just pray, Lord, you would help, help us be a church that creates opportunity so that when people seek you and seek community in this building, Lord, they would find it. Let's pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I have uh, some strange discussion questions for you today because they're not really... I'm just going to tell you the answer to all three and uh, instead of you having to uh, discuss them yourselves. But I just have here uh, three questions that you might ask. If these things are true for you, these things are true for you, might I just ask you this? Are you connected to the body? Are you a part of the body? You are but are you living in that way? And so if you find yourself, that, that you find that you don't feel close to God, that God, you feel a distance between yourself and God, for, for decades of my life, I, thought, I, thought, I felt that way, and I, I never put it together that it was because I was disconnected from the church. I want to hear some good stories about me and trying to escape church. So ask, ask Candace about me in the parking lot at Gateway. I used to go to Gateway, and I used to be the first one out, and I used to set a timer, and if Candace wasn't out in good time, I was going to leave, and I, I check in out every time. I never left, but I said it every week. I said, I'm leaving. Uh, you got five minutes, say, say hi to somebody. I was the first one out. I didn't want to be part of the body. I wanted, I wanted to have my own personal relationship with Christ, and I wanted church people. That was for people who liked other people. That was for people who wanted to. Uh... So when you see me now, and I'm still a bit of a prickly pear, I admit it, um, you, should, you, you would be amazed to know how far I've come in that way. But if you don't feel close to God, if you don't feel like you're growing in your walk with him, if you don't feel like you know what your purpose is, may I suggest to you that it may be because you're not connected to the body, that you're not seeking out that relationship with community. And, and it's a little bit like, like this piston here. If you're living that solitary life, again, you're, it doesn't mean you're not a piston, but it certainly doesn't make you a car. And you may find yourself that you, you, you are full of potential for power, but, but instead of being powerful, you're, you're best used as a paperweight. And so uh, those three questions are not questions that you're necessarily meant to answer with each other, but I think they're three triggering questions to simply say, you know, am I connected to the body? How do I know if I'm connected to the body? And so uh, I wish you guys a great week. I look forward to seeing you all tomorrow. Am I taking attendance? Probably. Uh, but uh, I've been told I can't do anything about it if you're not there. And I guess most of you found out about it five minutes ago. So... (laughs) 
But uh, looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, uh, just uh, enjoying the, a chance just to be the church together tonight. And uh, if you'd like to chat, you'd like to pr- like prayer before you leave, always happy to do that as well. So beyond that, have a great week. And don't forget to pick up your kids because you have to. Yeah. <laughs>